Okay, right. Three, two. Get your head in the game. Welcome to another edition of Films on Trial. This week, Bank, I'm Gav. Alex. I'm Joe. I'm Dave. And I'm Austin. And just like Mank, we don't actually have a tagline and we rely on these multi-million dollar movies to come up with one week by week so we can use it. But obviously, David Fincher is as lazy as us when it comes to taglines. So thank you very much, pal. Now, on to this week's film, which is the 2020 drama Mank. Is it Gary Oldman or is it Old Man Gary? <laughs> oh. <laughs> I just I realised I didn't have anything written down. Off the top of your head? Is that off yeah, the top of your head, was. that one? <laughs> <laughs> That's the best you could do. Oh, I could see you just went Gary Oldman and then you were like, something will come to me. <laughs> and it didn't. You just switched the name. <laughs> Did the old Jeremy's Iron, didn't you? <laughs> Well, I was, I was actually going to say Gary Newman, but then I was like, oh, I quite like Gary Newman. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, old, old man Gary. Uh, essentially, we're going to find out if this will be placed on our esteemed hit list or our steaming shit list. Uh, just to say this will be a very spoiler episode, so if you haven't seen Mank yet, it's free if you have a Netflix account. If not, you can trust our judgments. Alternatively, that joke's can- getting pretty old now, isn't it? It's not. It's not a joke, it's true. It's uh, from but, Saint. It, it was a joke that I think either me or Ozzy made, and then you've constantly robbed it ever since. Well, like it's free if you've got a Netflix accounts. That's I'm just stating the fact. It that is it's true. If you've got a Netflix accounts, you can watch this film for free. If you haven't, tough shit, mate. It's, it's not. It's just to us. it's a no old man Gary joke. That's all we're saying. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you've got a house, you can sleep in it for free as well. <laughs> Oh, great, great. Right, I'm moving on quickly. Right, I can't even remember what I was going to say. Yeah, this week we're going to have a nice quiz, which is going to be brought to us by Dave. And uh, that's going to start later on in the episode. I'll, I'll change this up, mate, so it's not exactly the same for you, Joel. I reckon it's going to start just before the 50-minute mark. <laughs> I think, I don't know. Anyway, before we go on, our last film on trial was Christmas Chronicles 2, which Alex judged... Alex has since gone away and watched the film. He decided to place it on the shit list at the time. So, Alex, did you make the right call? I'm going to say that, actually, I think Joel was quite kind to the film <laughs> uh, after <laughs> last week. I mean, he went on a 10-minute rant about the child acting. and it was like, The child acting was actually worse than Joel said. It was, it's, it's a pretty appalling film without any saving grace, I have to say, including Kurt and Goldie. I'm sorry, Gav, I'm looking at you in the face here, but <laughs> neither, of them, neither of them pull that anywhere near close from the brink of just utter disaster. I think it's a, it's a, it's a film that will be put on in front of children, but I don't think it's going to become a, 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 a child <laughs> classic by any means. I beg to differ. Um, <laughs> I literally, we literally had a child in this house legally, I'll have you know, yesterday. <laughs> legally? <laughs> Why and, and, we made, <laughs> and we made and we made her watch and we made her watch both Christmas Chronicles 1 and 2. Oh, Jesus. And she preferred to. Really? She was probably old. just saying that so you could stop. She's like, six. Six, 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 six years old. Six years old. She thought, I think Christmas Chronicles 1 was probably too old for her. And I think that's what we kind of said that we as adults really preferred Christmas Chronicles 1 because there was more sort of, it was, it was fresher, it was more original for us. Whereas Chronicles 2, 
it's meant for kids. It is just not for us at all. It's I think you're right to put it on the shit list, but <laughs> but I think for a kids' film, it's probably quite good and quite popular as a kids' film. I love how on, you should bring her on the show. I'll see if we can hash it out. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah, I used her. Um, I think I used some of her audio last time around for um, uh, Frozen oh, yeah, or something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, that was for um, it was um, Artemis Fowl. Artemis Fowl. Yeah, she was lying through her teeth for that. Though I had to force, I had to force those words out of her mouth <laughs> again legally. <laughs> I like how like you legally brought her into the house but then you subjected her to films that you didn't want to watch <laughs> yeah yeah pretty much I didn't want to I didn't want to have to entertain her personally so just, just put the TV how, on and spoke to her it's family it's just how you how you feel the need to constantly state that it was it was all legal we're in a well, we're, in, we're in a we're in a state of semi-lockdown aren't we oh, yeah, right. so. that makes for, more sense for, for, yeah. for listeners yeah. in the future yeah, yeah. We're, we're, yeah. it's the pandemic is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 thanks for clarifying that. I mean, yeah. we're, we're in the present right now and I still didn't know it was about the pandemic it's like why is he saying it's legally brought into the house has he got some sort of history that I don't know about right. it, was for, it was for research purposes moving on moving on right thank you very much Alex so Onto the trial. All of the films have been picked out of the hat at random. So acting as defense and trying to get this film placed on the hit list will be Ozzy and Alex. Ozzy is a bit like... So, so I've, I've gone for David Finch, Fincher films here, by the way. So Ozzy is a little bit like The Social Network. A lot of Facebook friends, but most of them think he's an absolute arsehole. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and Alex is just like Alien 3. He dresses like he lives in a grimy space prison. <laughs> yeah, and, you know what? <laughs> you called it like you saw it. Fair enough. <laughs> of all the things to say about Alien 3, you went with that. I was thinking, oh, this could be bad. Yeah, no, I know. At least I'm not the space dog. I, I just realised as well, I could have gone with the, the old ball joke, uh, but uh, uh, I didn't. So, uh, well, so, you, you did. You did right now. But... <laughs> <laughs> now uh, acting as prosecution and trying to get this film placed on the shit list will be Joel and me. Joel is a little bit like Panic Room. He has a seemingly indestructible wardrobe in his house that was built by a previous owner. <laughs> it's a very, very niche joke that only Joel would know about. I was going to say, literally only Joel got the joke, I think. He's been yeah. clearly chatting to you for DIY too. <laughs> uh, who knows, Joel? Maybe there's hidden treasures buried underneath that as well. Um, but maybe not. Pro- probably not. If there's anything like any of the DIY that I've had to do, ripping up things from the 70s, it's just full of old shit. Anyway, <laughs> um, and on to me. I'm I'm just like seven. I'm angry, lazy, greedy, vain. <laughs> uh, the list could go on. Envious, proud, lustful, you know, yeah. <laughs> and if you keep on riling me up, your head's going to end up in a box, lad. Uh, now, <laughs> just like real court advocates, the defense and prosecution will be making the best case for their roles. These may or may not be their real opinions, though, so do stay tuned until the end of the episode to hear their genuine thoughts. Which means this week, Dave will be playing the most important role as he will be acting as the judge. And Dave is just like the, ca- uh, the curious case of Benjamin Button. He's had the attitude, mentality, and looks of a 40-year-old for the past 20 years. <laughs> uh, now, Dave must decide... You know, the best bit about your, this little introduction is I know that if I'm not on your team, I automatically have a better chance of winning. 
Because, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just great. Yeah, yeah, it just pisses at your job. Yeah. <laughs> and I take it out on you as well. Minus scalp one point. <laughs> minus Austin two. <laughs> I'm not on Gus team. <laughs> Minus Austin three. Keep back Stop shutting. it, Aussie. Keep back shutting, and this was going to be a long night. <laughs> now, uh, Dave, Dave's job here is to decide which list the film should be placed on, hit or shit, based solely on the arguments put to him and not using his own opinion, uh, which is good because, Dave, you haven't watched Mank yet, am I right? I have not. I don't know very much about it. So, this is uh, all to play for. Good stuff. Now, before we get going and to clue Dave up a little bit and to give the listeners a bit of a better understanding as to what Mank is all about, why don't we spin the wheel of impressions? So here we read off the synopsis of the film in the style of one of the cast or characters from the film this week. It's landed on Alex. So how would we like Alex to read out the synopsis? Anyone? Got to be Orson Welles. Orson Welles, yeah, of course. Got to be Orson Welles. All right, all right, I'll give it a go. 1930s Hollywood is reevaluated through the eyes of scathing social critic and alcoholic screenwriter Herman J. Mankiewicz as he races to finish the screenplay of Citizen Kane. Avatars. I was going for I was going for tel- like radio voice. That's what I was going for. I'll be yeah. honest. It was a bit Charles Dancy as well. To be <laughs> well, thank you. I was uh, I was actually practicing my Orson Welles. A little bit all day today, all right? I'm not ashamed to say just it. In case. <laughs> yeah, just in case. I was bored. I have to walk a long way to work and I don't have a lot to do. So sometimes uh, sometimes I decide to do little impressions and I was, uh, yeah, I was working on that one. That was the one you did. <laughs> no, that was the one. Well, did. you know what? It, it, it worked Should have been well. better. I thought it was good. Oh, yeah. The best way to do Awesome Wells is to think of Pinky in the brain and just impersonate brain. <laughs> that is the best <laughs> way to do an Awesome Wells impression. I think, Dave, you just got an all. I think you just sound a little bit like Awesome Wells already, Dave. You've got a, oh, got a chocolatey radio voice, Dave. Oh, bless you. <laughs> that was a point, point to Alex. <laughs> yeah. voice. What the hell is that? <laughs> We're only on minus two now, Alex. <laughs> Keep it up. Chocolatey radio voice is basically saying he sounds like Errol Brown. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I've, had, I've f- had much much worse on this podcast <laughs> <believe me. laughs> to be fair Dave I would love to hear you do a rendition of War of the Worlds one day um, but may- maybe not today anyway uh, without further hesitation Dave would you like to please kick off proceedings yep okay so I'm going to tell you what little I know about this film already I know it's called Mank I know it is about um, the screenwriter slash producer of Citizen Kane I believe I think his name is Mankovitz uh, and I know there was a legal battle when it came to getting Citizen Kane released. I believe it's something to do with that. I think it was William Randolph Hearst objected to the release of Citizen Kane because it was based too much on his life. Uh, I know Gary Oldman plays Mankiewicz. I know David Fincher has directed. I know it's shot in black and white. And I know the guy from Cormoran Strike plays Awesome Wells. That is literally everything I know about Mank. There I mean, that's, there. that's all my notes, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> so on that note, uh, who would like to kick off scenes? Someone from defence, perhaps? Tell me why this is a good film. Alex, take it away. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, he's, he wasn't a producer. He was a screenwriter. Um, I think it's... Uh, ba- basically, he... I think it's based on a Hollywood sort of um, legend that Herman J. Mankiewicz, um, who wrote the screenplay to Citizen Kane, one of the greatest films, you know, the 100% on Rotten Tomatoes, greatest films ever made. And this film sort of explores how it was made. Uh, it doesn't do what I, when I was going into it, I thought it was just going to explain because there was a big problem like who wrote it? Was it Orson Welles or was it Mankiewicz? And actually, it doesn't really go into that that much. It goes, it basically says that like, Mankiewicz did a lot of the writing 
and deserved his credit. And Orson Welles sort of came in and did rewrites after it. So it doesn't really go into that too much. But you're right, the film is about um, mainly about William Randolph Hearst, who was a, prop, who was a media mogul of the time on, on which Citizen Kane was basically based. So Mankiewicz wrote the script and Charles Foster Kane is William um, Randolph Hearst. And the, I mean, down to Xanadu is San Simeon. The, you know, the, the, the parallels between them are, are so absurd that basically it was a film and everyone knew that it was lampooning this media mogul. Um, it was quite tricky to do this film, I think, and David Finch has done an extremely good job. Um, you've got to remember this is a film that's going to be talking about Citizen Kane quite a lot, which is, you know, 100% on Rotten Tomatoes, regularly voted by cinema goes as like the best film ever made. So it's almost like doing a painting of the painting of the Mona Lisa. Do you know what I mean? It's going to be quite hard to do a film based on that, but it, it, it really does a good job. What, what David Fincher does is he textures his sort of homage to Citizen Kane within the fabric of the film. So the, the narrative itself is quite fragmentary. You know, like Citizen Kane sort of starts, uh, you know, with Rosebud and it sort of jumps back and forth. You know, it, the parallels aren't so obvious that you sort of go, come on. But, you know, um, Mankiewicz is introduced to us and he's just had a car crash and he's about to write the script. So he's in bed. So a little bit, do you know what I mean? Your mind's flipping a little bit to you know, to, to Charles Foster Kane in his bed at the end. And, you know, and the narrative sort of jumps around a little bit like that. Um, so the fragments sort of run through it like Citizen Kane and you have the two sort of different parts of it. You have parts of it where you see Mank as this washed up writer who's lying in bed, he's got a nurse and he's starting to write the script of Citizen Kane. And then you have these flashbacks coming where you sort of see why he's become washed up. And so it's almost like you've got post-fall of Mank and pre-fall of Mank. And, and as the story goes on, you see how these two stories in, interconnect. And at first, you sort of to see the post-fall, you see him as this washed-up writer who's completely against William Randolph Hearst, this, like, magnet, this movie mogul, no, sorry, this media mogul who everyone is like, why on earth are you trying to attack this man? He's, this, this is the most powerful man. This is like someone going up against Rupert Murdoch now. The man was just... I mean, maybe beyond that, even Murdoch's power now, just completely in control of everything. Can everyone just keep saying to Mank, like, why are you attacking him? Why are you, why are you going after him? And the other part of the story, the pre-fall, where they sort of does the flashbacks, lets you to, helps you to understand a little bit about why he, why he is doing. Um, I'm not going to talk for too long, but the main thing I want to say is there's, I think there's three areas of appeal to Mank, right? You got the first one, which I would say is the one that everyone I think can access, which is just it's just a sumptuous look at the era. You know, people love this golden age of Hollywood. People really get into it. You know, there's people who, you know, are, are big cinema fans love it. People, even people who don't, it's a golden age of Hollywood. And it's beautifully shot. I mean, it's just the David Finch's direction is masterful all the way through it. Uh, it really evokes the era fantastically and its use of techniques. So almost the audio sounds a little bit like an old 40s film. The shots sort of pan across like an old 40s film. So it's, you've got this really nice way of looking um, at, at the sort of cinema of the time. But it's almost without the Hayes Code, you know, the restrictive um, code at the time that meant, you know, you couldn't have people swearing. So you do have swearing in this film. So it's quite an interesting to watch a film done in this style that still has people swearing in it. it it's, 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 it's really, really, really well done, just from a directing point of view. You've got another point I'd say that people can appeal to would just be the, the drama, the fall and rise of Mank, the fall of uh, William Randolph Hearst, and just the interpersonal relationships like between Marion Davis, who's based on Charles Foster Kane's bride, 
Marion Davis was William Randolph Hearst. She's a big character in this and the relationships and how Mank and her get to know each other. So all those interpersonal relationships are, are really, really interesting. But also I'd say, and for me personally, maybe what I think I got most out of it was it really goes into the detail of the time. It gives you massive amounts of historical context, the depression, where, you know, Hollywood cinema came from, um, the rise of Hitler in, in, and, you know, how that was sort of taken in America at the time. Uh, it looks at socialism. You have Upton Sinclair and his run for uh, governor of California. So it goes into a little bit about, you know, these big magnets of cinema and how they were sort of against the workers of the time. And the, the basic one, the, the biggest one for it is the, the rise of media moguls. You know, it's and its influence on politics. It's very I think it's very it's not a coincidence that we this was made during the time it was made. You know, if you think about William Randolph Hearst, a big part of it is um, basically that he, uh, I won't talk for too much long, I'll just be like a second more. Basically that um, he has um, this huge influence on politics. He has this amazing capacity and he starts to lie and make things up. You know, you don't have to look a very long way to see a very similar person in American politics at the time, big media magnet, that has an undue and disingenuous influence on politics. So I think, you know, for me, there's a huge amount of appeal in this film and um, and it's superbly done. Hit list material, without a doubt. <laughs> I, we, we'll get that on the DVD cover one day. <laughs> okay, so just to wrap, uh, cons- uh, wrap that up, it's uh, Alex said the screenwriter behind Citizen Kane, Mankiewicz, um, it's... A great film with flashbacks showing how Mank was washed up in the first place. There's drama. It's a sumptuous look at the golden age of Hollywood. There's masterful direction. Uh, they played with the audio to make it more authentic. It looks at the events of the era and maintains relevance today. Sounds like it's got it all. Gav? Alex mentioned before, you know, try, what did you say, Alex? I can't remember. Painting of a painting of the Mona Lisa. I think if you try and do a painting of a painting of the Mona Lisa, you end up with the Da Vinci Code, which is, is to say that this film isn't as good as Citizen Kane. Alex said that, you, you know, you're constantly thinking about Citizen Kane. It's referenced throughout this film. And I think you're just obviously going to compare it to Citizen Kane throughout and it just doesn't stand up. Uh, Alex, you mentioned that there were three points to this, you know, the golden age of Hollywood, the drama and such. You know, ultimately, I think that this is a passion project for Fincher. Apparently, he's adapting a script that was written by his late father, which he has been wanting to direct himself or adapt since the mid-90s. But to me, it feels a little self-indulgent just because it's an interesting topic to the Finchers doesn't mean that it should be made into a multi-million dollar movie. Um, If you're a fan, as Alex said before, of Hollywood's politics of the 1930s, then this film is definitely for you. But if you're not, I honestly think that you're genuinely going to struggle in this. Although the film purportedly details the career and the struggles of the screenwriter Herman J. Mankiewicz between the early 30s and until the completion of Citizen Kane in 1942, the actual bulk of the script focuses on movie studio MGM and, as Alex said before, media tycoon William Randolph Hearst trying to influence the 1934 California governor elections for the Republican Party and their early forms of fake news to manipulate constituents. You know, obviously that is all very relevant in today's political society. You know, you look at the comparisons drawn to Donald Trump. But there's 
a lot of heavy dialogue involved here and long and detailed descriptions of subjects, including studio contracts and finances, the differences between communism and socialism and the formation of the Writers Guild of America. The problem is, is that I'm tuning in to watch a film. You know, I feel like I'm being subjected to a history lecture in some points. The dense script isn't helped by this chaotic timeline or, or, or narrative structure. Uh, it's flipping constantly forwards between, sorry, constantly backwards and forwards between the creation of Citizen Kane, as Alex said, when um, Mank is essentially, uh, it, it, he, he can't move, he's, he's, he's in a hospital bed essentially, and he's writing the script, and it flips back to the early 30s. And during these flashbacks and flash forwards, we were introduced to several subplots as. Alex detailed before, the rise of Hitler and America's involvement, Manx's German nurse and her backstory, the Great Depression, Manx's brother's troubles with his career in Hollywood, and so on. But because of the chaotic timeline and so much focus being given to 1930s Hollywood politics, some of these plot points are barely covered. Some are heavily hinted at, but then either dropped quickly or have this shoehorned in conclusion at the end for example there's a bit with he's got an assistant who's looking after him and essentially writing up his notes her husband it goes missing because he's shot down by the germans and it looks like it's going to be a really key point there's a bit of you know sort of um, a conflict between her and mank when she originally receives the letter saying that her husband's gone missing but then it's essentially abandoned for I'm going to say about an hour and 20 minutes and then brought back up five minutes before the end of the film. She comes in and she goes, oh yeah, by the way, my husband, yeah, he's alive, by the way. And that's it. That's essentially, it wasn't covered for an hour and 20 and then it's essentially shoehorned in, 20 second conclusion and that's it. The biggest crime for me it's what I thought was going to be the real meat and potatoes. This film, <laughs> sorry, sorry, the meat and potatoes, <laughs> the meat and potato, the bulk, the bulk of the film. Oh, yeah, yeah, the meat, the meat and potatoes. No, it's, no, it's a nice <laughs> phrase. I really. Like so what I thought was really, gonna... really capturing his nineteen thirties metaphors. <laughs> yeah. okay. yeah. Hey, hey, doll. What I thought was going to be the meat and potatoes <laughs> of this film. Yeah, what I thought was going to be the bulk of this film was the battle between Orson Welles and, and Mank over the ownership of the Citizen Kane script. Dave, you alluded to before. You said, "Oh, there's a lot of legal troubles at the end." and even um, uh, what's his name Hearst putting an, an objection like that isn't really covered you know essentially we're, we've got a three minute footnote just before the film ends of this conflict between Orson Welles and Mank that it's just I thought should have been a much key a much more like key aspect of the entire film you see the most interesting part of it is essentially relegated to i'm going to continue the food analogy here a side salad <laughs> and what oh, we're left on, with it's, it's, a side salad. it's at least it's Nobody at least wedges yeah, no, no, meat and potatoes <laughs> abandoned. What we're left with instead is this very unengaging and lifeless pate. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's it, sorry. <laughs> okay. Um, food analogies aside, I mean, keep them going if you want to, by all means. But uh, just to wrap up what Gav has said, says it's not as good as Citizen Kane. Uh, the fake news may be relevant, but the timeline flips back and forth. They shoehorn in some plot points and they wrap up the more interesting, perhaps, aftermath in a three-minute footnote towards the end. Uh, Austin, do you have anything to retort to that? Uh, yeah, I mean, what the meat and two veg said <laughs> uh, was... Um... <laughs> uh, you know, I, I don't actually think what he said was particularly wrong. He's... Um... But he's saying it in all the wrong tones. Like, it doesn't matter that it's not, but I've never seen Citizen Kane. So so it makes no odds to me whether the film particularly 
delves into the whole Mank and Wells story so much, it was actually interesting to see that. And the timeline isn't an issue because you're picking up pieces in each of those flashbacks. You know, the as you jump back and you see the different areas, I, I found it uh, surprisingly engaging. And because it's so well shot and so, like, it's so pretty, you know, it's, it, it was great. It was, and it was such a nice change to watch, like, like Alex was saying, that to see a film in black and white and done in the style of a classic 1930s film, but modern, you know, it's almost like a behind the scenes. Um, I just thought it was, it was pretty, I, I found it quite, it felt very original. It felt to me quite engaging. Um, I was pleasantly surprised. I, I like genuinely was happy that I, one, that I ended up on the defense for this one mm-hmm. found, and found it, you know, I found it a pleasure, pleasurable watch, you know, in spite of the, there are times where there's a lot of talking. There are times where, you know, it's, it's relatively, you know, the, there's a bit of exposition, but I, I found because it is so relevant and because it is almost like it felt to me as though it, it was almost like the, the generation, the, 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 the starting point, you know, the origination of the media moguls, of the Trumps, of the, of the Murdochs. You know, this is kind of like the relevancy was not lost upon me. You know, it really did feel like this, this had something to say beyond the Wells and um, Mankovich story. And that's probably why it wasn't touched upon so much. I don't know the, you know, I don't know the full screenwriter side of it from Finch's uh, dad, you know, um, that that Gab was touching on there, that, you know, it was just a passion project and it was, it's got no relevance beyond their family. That didn't strike me in the slightest. I felt like it was incredibly well shot the audio touch, you know, those little bits of it made it feel all the more, um, uh, trying to think of the word, all the more authentic. Um, and yeah, it, it's just, it really, I think, I felt like it captured the 1930s golden era of cinema far better than, um, what's that one that's just been out on, not just been out, it's probably two years ago now, but uh, the, oh shit, what's it called? Once upon, a, Once upon a Time in Hollywood or wherever it was oh, called. Right, right. Okay. It felt to me, like far more engaging than that obviously a very different film but this felt authentic whereas the other one felt like uh you know just a, a, a chance to be glitzy uh, glitzy so yeah that's my two cents anyway okay thank you very much austin uh joel we've not heard from you yet are you going to back up some of gav's points um joel surprises <laughs> too busy thinking about food and allergy yeah. i mean uh yeah, Gav pretty much said exactly what I was going to say there. I would say that this film has little to no like widespread appeal. Um, you know, I, I like Citizen Kane, but you know, I didn't find this film interesting at all, and I found it like really hard to kind of sit there and watch it all, listen to all the really heavy dialogue, and you know, I kind of tried to watch it with my wife as well, and she zoned out after like 10, 15 minutes, you know, it wasn't long into the film at all. So I, I would argue that this film, you know, while it might appeal to some people, you know, um, it's it's far too niche. And I would say, you know, um, Alex and Ozzy mentioned like the, the black and white, you know, some of the production values and, and uh, you know, camera work on this film. I would say to me, it felt like recreation rather than, uh, sorry, it felt like imitation rather than, you know, like recreation. Um, just like the setups and the editing of it, none of it really felt like it was 
how it would have been, you know, in that time. Kind of felt like he was trying to have his cake and eat it a little bit. I know we use that phrase quite a lot on this podcast, but it really did kind of feel like, you know, he was just going for this black and white to try and make you feel like it's, you know, like that 1930s feel. But then he uses all these modern day techniques and things like that to make, you know, to put his own little spin on it, if you like. And it, it was proper David Fincher. I just think if you want to go for that authenticity, you need to go like, you know, jump in with two feet type of thing rather than having it one way or the other. Um, so, yeah, I just think it will appeal to some people, but for the majority of people, and I do mean like the majority of people, I don't think that there's that there's much there to, to enjoy. Okay, thank you very much. So I've got a vague idea of what the film contains, what it's about. I've got an idea of how it's shot and David Fincher's um, commitment to the project for personal reasons as well as professional. Um, but we haven't talked about characters yet. And given the amount of dialogue there seems to be, you know, it's, this isn't an action film. This is a drama film, so it's going to be very uh, actor-driven, very dialogue-driven, very script-driven. How is the script? How well-written is it? And how well is it delivered? by the cast that we have available. I know Gary Oldman's in it. Like I say, guy from Corman Strike. Um, who else is in it? And are they any good? Uh, who wants to take this one? Alex, back to you. Yeah, um, just, to, just to start on the script, um, I wouldn't necessarily disagree with, uh, again, I'm going to disagree with their tone, as, as Ozzy would, rather than, <laughs> rather than their words. It, it, is, it is quite a heavy script. It's not a light script. Um, and, it, and, you know, it presupposes that you know a little bit, you know, this is a film about the life of, um, Mankiewicz and you know Citizen Kane so I, I think it's fair that the film presupposes a little bit of you know a bit of historical context I disagree with Joel I still think there's enough appeal just in the actual way it's just beautifully presented I still think people would just enjoy the look of the insight into Hollywood of that time I, I, but and if I you think, think about it, lasagna doesn't really look that appealing, but when you eat it, it's it's nice. I, I think <laughs> <laughs> it's true, actually. You know, it's, no, it's Jesus, a Goliath. No, he's right. He's right. It's, God. It took us a while to get that food analogy, but when it came, oh, God, yeah, it. no, you're right. Bechamel. Jesus, Bechamel. I didn't <laughs> um, <laughs> No, uh, uh, moving on to the characters. So, yeah, sorry, just to, just to finish on script. It is heavy, and it does maybe maybe ask a lot. But, you know, sometimes that's fine, and sometimes that's, you know, I wouldn't say that every film necessarily has to be Frozen 2 and have a massive mass appeal. This is looking at people who are going to be interested in, in the time, and it does have a lot of historical, um, um, you know, script ideas in it that you do need to sort of keep up with I, I enjoyed that and i quite like the fact that you could sort of jump go with it a little bit and it didn't have to spend ages sort of just telling you citizen kane was a film that was made and hitler was a man who was in jail you know I, I like the fact that it just sort of was like yeah you know this you know or if you don't just you know what i mean go away go on wikipedia and then come back and watch this film you know it, I, I quite like that um the i think the some of these performances are absolutely amazing again you know gab was saying that this you know it keep you keep um, comparing it to Citizen Kane to its disadvantage, I, I disagree. It's 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 enough apart from it, and this is where the performances come in because you don't get these sorts of you know. You, 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 Gary Oldman does exactly what Gary Oldman does. He, he just delivers an absolutely astounding performance. That's just that's what the guy gets paid to do. Do you know what I mean? And he turns up and he does the exact same thing. It, a really good, um, he really does look like an alcoholic. Do you know what I mean? And he, and I mean, you know, sometimes you see those alcoholics that are in films and are all sort of thick. Like Al, Gary Oldman looks like a man who's just had 
too much drink in his life. You know what I mean? He's a good method actor, apparently. He's got a good, yeah, he's got he's got a well-lived in mouth. And like he, he just looks like he's he's had a lot of uh, like like he's had a, a life of dissipation. He really brings that across. Um I don't mean that about Gary Oldman, by the way. I mean he's acting. <laughs> you know, you know what I mean? I'm Gary Oldman. He's um, worked hard to better himself, I'll have you know. <laughs> He just delivers it perfectly. And the Man- Mankiewicz as a character is not exactly a, a particularly sympathetic character uh, all the way through it. You know, at first, um, especially in his when you keep going back to his pre-fall period, you know, he doesn't get involved in the Screenwriters Guild. People are asking him about support in Upton Sinclair, the socialist. And he's, you know, he, he talks a good talk, but he keeps, he hangs around the throne of Randolph Hearst. And you're like, well, why is he hanging around if he then wrote, wrote Citizen Kane? Why is he hanging around? So you don't actually like him. You think he is a bit of a toady. He does suck up to these powerful people. And, you know, he is a court jester. He's just a fool who bets. And he, he's kept around on a whim by, by Randolph Hearst. And you sort of, he's not a character you really necessarily get behind. And you realize that actually writes Citizen Kane in the end out of a sense of guilt rather than, you know, because he didn't do anything. He didn't stop it when, when they started making false political news against Upton Sinclair, the socialist candidate. He didn't do anything to stop it. His friend ended up, who directed the fake news, ended, ended up killing himself. And he didn't do enough to help his friend at the time. And, you know, and he's, he's been around this court and he's surrounded by these rich people that he sort of looks up to, but then he sort of attacks and he doesn't like. So it, it's a very complicated place for the character being. Gary Oldman really brings it off. He doesn't do himself any... Um, he doesn't make it seem like it's okay. Do you know what I mean? He takes that hard actor decision sometimes and doesn't make himself look very cool sometimes. He looks like quite a weasel. Um, I, and, I, and I think the, the, ba- the main thing I'm going to talk about here is Amanda Seyfried, who is just incredible. She's Marion Davies, and she is absolutely just the best performance I've seen from her. Like, really, any, any film she's in now, I'd just be like, wow. You'd remember she was in Mank, and you'd be ready for, for, for everything she's in. It's a hard, really hard role for her to take because... Um, Orson Welles and, Hen- and Herman Mankiewicz, in real life later on, they really regretted their portrayal of Marion Davis in the film. can't remember who, um, the, 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 the character who plays her in um, Citizen Kane. But the wife of Charles Foster Kane, who's sort of the, the showgirl who's just stupid and left and really becomes embittered, that's based on Marion Davies, and they both regretted in real life. They both really regretted the way this film haunted her through, throughout the rest of her life. And I think this film sort of does a nice bit of actually sort of redressing that balance a little bit. It does. It has a nice. She perfectly pitches it as a right mix of ignorant socialite and also quite an intelligent woman who's who's just been sort of taken apart. <laughs> who's just been taken um, away basically by a life of just absurd riches. Um, it's an absolutely amazing performance by um, Amanda Seyfried. And like, like I say, she just gets that mix absolutely spot on. Okay, thank you very much. So I hear good things about the script. I hear good things about Gary Oldman's performance. I hear good things about Amanda Seyfried's performance. Uh, Gav, I saw your hand up there. You might uh, want to disagree with any of those points or make fresh ones of your own, possibly with food analogies. (laughs) I will. Uh, So uh, essentially, uh, you think you're going to get a delicious smoothie when it comes to the script. It's got all the (laughs) the right ingredients, but the blender doesn't actually work. So you just get like half mushed up versions of your favorite vegetables in this sludge that you can't really drink. 
Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, I've already gone into a bit of context about what I didn't like about the script. I think that you know focuses too much on the boring aspects of the plot, not enough on the most interesting parts. And there's a lot of different subplots that are raised and then just not covered properly. And I think you know Alex mentioned about going away on Wikipedia and, uh, for more information. I don't want to have to do homework, you know, when I'm watching a film. I just want to be able to watch it. Either tell me about the context there or it needs to be something big enough that I already know about. Like the career of uh, the screenwriter or the cast or, you know, producers of Citizen Kane, I'm not really going to know that much about it. So if you give me a little bit of context going in, that'd be great. Thank you very much. Um, but um, what I, I, I also think the dense script isn't helped out by, as I mentioned before, that chaotic sort of narrative flipping backwards and forwards between the creation of Citizen Kane and the periods throughout the 1930s. During these flashbacks and flash forwards, um, it's, it's just a little bit all over the place. Um, and it really restricts the film as well from building momentum. Um, the, I mentioned one interesting scene before, the culmination of the film, the final three minutes when Mank and Orson Welles are having a go at each other. The second or the only other interesting part of the film or the interesting scene is this dinner party at um, Hearst's Manor, essentially, where Mank gets up and he drunkenly lectures Hearst in front of many guests about the error of his ways, going as far to say that the loathsome character of Citizen Kane and the entire script in general is about Hearst himself. However, the tension and the drama from that scene is entirely zapped because it cuts away from it twice. So I'm, I'm like really interested in that one scene, but then it cuts away to something that I don't really care as much about. And so when it comes back, I'm less invested than I was uh, on the first time round. The dialogue is also just too much at some points. Characters talk in really long, fast, eloquent and elaborate verses, which I found hard to follow at some points. And also just generally unbelievable. I just don't think anybody talks like that or has ever talked like that, regardless if it's 1930s or now. I don't know if this is an issue with the direction or the script or the actors, but there were scenes where the characters just rapidly talk and respond seemingly without listening to each other. A great example is in the writer's room at MGM where all the characters are supposedly talking off the cuff, but they just aren't. You know, they're simply speaking their lines really, really horridly. There's no way that you'd be able to listen to hear what somebody had said and then come up with a response right away. It's it, it just, yeah, I, I just did find it very, very hard to believe. I will agree with Alex though about um, Gary Oldman being very good. He is very good. And, uh, However, I do think that the character is generally unlikable, once again, drawing comparisons to Citizen Kane. And although I do think Gary Oldman is good, specifically, he's very good at playing an alcoholic 60-plus-year-old writer in 1930s Hollywood. But is he a good portrayal of him and Jay Mankiewicz? I don't, I don't know. I don't really know the guy. One thing I do know is that there is a scene later on which Mank reveals his age to Orson Welles and he says he is 43. <laughs> Meaning that in those flashbacks, he would have been mid-30s. Now, Gary Oldman is a very good actor, right? A very good actor. But at 62 <laughs> years old, he's nowhere near good enough to pass for literally half his age. Right? Uh, Tom Burke, on the other hand, looks the part. He, it's age as well. You know, he's playing 24-year-old Orson Welles. He's maybe the best depiction of Orson Welles I've seen outside of Vincent D'Onofrio in Ed Woods. And I'd definitely agree I with Alex. Say outside of Orson Welles. <laughs> outside Orson Welles, outside of know, Orson Welles himself, he's, a t- he's second. No, I'd say, I'd say, say Orson outside Welles. Of, outside of brain from Animaniacs. <laughs> 
<laughs> I, I, I would say it's like that uh, old uh, fable of um, Charlie Chaplin coming like third in a Charlie Chaplin lookalike contest. Oh, yeah. I'd say it goes Vincent D'Onofrio, this guy, and then Orson Welles himself. <laughs> now, but I will also agree with Alex. I think Amanda Seyfried is also very, very good as, as Marion Davis. Um, and, you know, she definitely, as Alex said, rebalances the career of Marion Davis. You know, I think the the actress got a very big disservice from the original screen and this sort of addresses that a little bit and tries to resettle it. Um, this a very, very bizarre cameo. Uh, Upton Sinclair, we spoke about before, the candidate that uh, has all the fake news made against him, is played by Bill Nye, the science guy, which I had to kind of pause and go like, is that, is that Bill Nye, the science guy, in maybe his first role ever? Uh, and it was. And I just thought it was very bizarre and it kind of brought me out of it a little bit. I don't know if anybody else felt that. Uh, there's a few other good performances. Um, you know, I think uh, uh, I could go on about all the other casts and, you know, how, how I think they did a good job. But because they were great. Just to, I will agree, but, but, and this is a big but here, there is just this, a lot of characters that just blur into one person for me. Uh, I don't know whether it's a case that it's set in the 1930s, it's particular time it's all in black and white everybody is dressed similar everyone has similar haircuts there are multiple scenes in the mgm writers room this is this is true with half a dozen or so writers and if you put a gun to my head like i wouldn't be able to differentiate between any of them if you were to say challenge accepted (laughs) there's just a lot of forgettable people uh, and and characters are also as i mentioned before introduced with little or no detail so unless you know the specific of 1930s Hollywood pretty well, you're going to definitely struggle to identify who they are. Okay, thank you very much, Gav. I saw your hand was yeah. up there, Ozzy, for a bit. I had a couple of small points. So there was the one of the ones that Gav brought up there was about the really quick, uh, the fast-paced dialogue in the, you know, darkly lit, um, fancily lit rooms. I just felt like that was an artistic choice to make it feel like you were watching a 1930s film. That was, you know... I, it, I think it helped make it you stick with the time and not make it feel like it was a modern day documentary or behind the scenes type film. So that to me felt like a very genuine stylistic choice. Um, I can see why that might grate on people a little bit, but it just felt like it was part of the time and it, it, it helped you to remain with the time period in that instance, because my only, you know, my only other reference point is 1930s films. So for them to continue talking in that manner when it's not the film, I think it helped me uh, stay in the in the period. So that that felt like a little bit of a you know that's a complaint which I don't think is very well founded. Um, I had another one come work. Gav, what was your other? You had that fast paced script. What was the the next one that you said, Gav? There was a. Uh, I said about the um, the narrative style, flashbacks and flash forwards. Was that? It? I said about Gary uh, Oldman. Not being oh yeah, the Gary Oldman bit. A thirty-five-year-old yeah, yeah, man. The, the Gary Oldman bit, right? If you f- let let us flash back to earlier on in the year when Gav had a little argument about uh, the Irishman, right? When we had old people playing young people. What you can't have it both ways, Gav. Either you I want did, them I to was, stay. I, did. I had it the other way around. Let him finish, Gav. Let old man. There's no way a seventy-year-old man can portray a thirty-odd-year-old man. There's no way. All right, you guys can't be done. So either we use technology and we'll make him look like a young man to get the right the right actor to do the job. Or just we just get him, a, we just a, let him play without the, without the technology. <laughs> we just 
why when you've got a perfectly you've got a great actor you know in his in his elderly life let this guy earn his pension man hey man we can actually use it would you rather have Gary Oldman <laughs> as a 35 year old man do not have Gary Oldman as a 62 year old man eh? think about that that's a great question uh, very good throwback to our Dracula episode of anybody's head uh, um, uh, you know what I would maybe have Gary Oldman play Hearst and have somebody who is young enough to play Mank. I just think that, like, Gary Oldman is 20 years older than Mank was when he died. Uh, no, hang on. How old was he when he died? About Mank 50, was. Yeah. About 55. Okay, well, let's just say he's, like, nearly 10 years older than he was when he died. And this is between the ages of about 30 to 42, I think. And I just don't, I just don't think, he, you know, the whole time I'm just like... You know, uh, uh, how old is this guy supposed to be? And then at the end, when it's like, oh, yeah, he's supposed to be 30 odd, you're like, what? Mm, okay. No, he's, he's okay. no. Uh, I, 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 I did, I I'm, I'm going to go back to Aussie now. I'm going to keep us on track. I'm going to go back to Aussie. Uh, my only on other about Gary Old. I'm sorry, <laughs> you got another point to make. Uh, yeah, my only other, my only on. other thing was, was, was to actually maybe agree with Gav a little bit on the cast. You know, if you do go into IMDb, I tried to do a little bit of research so I could make sure I knew who I was talking about at the time. Mm-hmm. It says there's something like 135 cast members, you know, and some of them are just extras, but there's you're probably talking sort of 20 or 30 people who've got actual named characters. So, yeah, there are quite a few, but they're not really part of it, you know, and it doesn't matter who all of the writers are in the room. And if you, I think if, if you are a history buff and you're into 1930s cinema, you may spot a few people and think, oh, is that meant to be who, you know, whoever it is meant to be. Maybe it's an Easter egg for you if you're, if you're that way inclined. But for the layman or, you know, just somebody watching, I don't think that matters whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, the, 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 the key characters are well and truly, you know, we've, we've, we've had uh, Amanda Seyfried, we've had Gary Oldman, those two, like, out and out, that is just, you know, for me, I thought that was just incredible acting. I'm not a big fan of Lily Collins, and I've, I saw an interview with her um, about the film, her and Amanda Seyfried, and you know what? I thought she did a pretty good job, you know, far better than she does in bloody uh, Girl in Paris. Uh, Emily um, in Paris. I was Emily thinking to Paris. myself, yeah. how the hell will you know who Lily Collins is? She don't watch yeah, anything, yeah. but yeah, It's a huge Phil Collins fan. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No way. No, no it's, so. Really? Is it that Phil Collins? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. That's, that's the Jesus. only reason, that for me, after, before this, I thought that was the only reason she got an acting job. The fact that her dad is Phil Collins and probably I, I, has a huge amount of money to put behind anything she works yeah. on. Also, but how, how this, lucky is she that she resembles a mother? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, she's got a dad's drumming uh, ability. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, you know what? This um, this proves that she she is worthy. You know, she is a good actor, um, far better than you know than, than Emily in Paris would have have had me believe. So I'm. Uh, you know, I was turned around by that. I thought it was great. But yeah, Amanda Seyfried's just that that character that she's playing as uh, Marion Davies. It just, you know, not knowing the, the story between, but about her beforehand, you know, she's that's a believable character and really well played. I thought it was great. Okay. I keep hearing mention of Hurst as well. Who plays Hurst? Charles Dance. Charles, Joel did mention Charles Dance earlier, actually. Yeah. Okay. Charles Dance. 
Always back. easy to imagine him as a bastard, isn't it? It is. Isn't it? <laughs> it is. <laughs> On that note, how's his accent? Obviously, very uh, well-spoken English Charles Dance playing Hurst. Dance does Charles Dance, doesn't he? Really? Well, well, well-spoken American, do you know what I mean? Which isn't too far off. I which think. which uh, like a pass for Hurst. That's sort of quite clipped. Yeah, I'd, I lost my audio books narrated by William Randolph Hearst, but I'll go with that's what his accent probably was like. Uh, and Joel, finally, I want to come to you. So I've heard a bit more about the performances here. I've heard some good ones. Uh, Gary Oldman, Amanda Seyfried, Lily Collins. Any performances here that are not so good? I mean, it sounds like a big cast of 30. Are they the only three worth remarking upon? Um, pretty much, yeah. I mean, they they definitely get the most screen time. And I think... The biggest thing that I would disagree with from what Alex and especially Austin said, and not just disagree with it, I would literally say that they've served you up a shit sandwich there. Wow. Is that um, <laughs> like this? I would never. Dave, look at me. I would never <laughs> serve you a shit sandwich. <laughs> the, 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 you, this is a panini. Um, you me a, a melt, maybe Dave. But. You just called Dave a melt. <laughs> a shit melt at that. <laughs> yeah. So, so back to the original point. Um, you, you know, I don't think that this is for like, you know, the common person, the average cinema goer, like the average Joe, whatever you, whatever term you want to use. You know, I think the the dialogue is very kind of fabricated, and I do think it's. Um, very very heavy as well and intense like it's done in like a very certain style i don't think like you could just sit there for example if you were you know tired off a big day at work go to the cinema and you know lose yourself in this film i do think that you have to pay attention constantly to the dialogue and that's not something that everybody wants to do in a film um and i do think that there's maybe some um you know, I don't know what the right word is, uh, you know, things taken in advance, if you like, that, you know, everybody's just going to like this film. It feels a little bit kind of almost pretentious in that way. Um, but, you know, overall, I do think the acting's pretty good. Uh, you know, I think Gary Oldman, for example, you know, I think he, he is good, but I feel like, you know, the director just drew him like a line and said, this is how you've got to act. And you he, he never really goes outside that, you know, if you compare to something like, you know, Joker, for example, um, you know, he, he displays like so many different emotions and things like that in that role and goes through, um, you know, a whole range of different aspects in terms of acting. Whereas I think Gary Oldman just kind of sticks to this very one particular style. Uh, and that's just kind of to be like loud and hammy and, um, you know, he's a little bit over the top, I would say. And he does that really well. Um, but I don't think he strayed outside of that at all. So, um, you know, I don't think it's perfect. Like uh, uh, the performances were good. I'm not going to say that they aren't, but I, I don't think that's everything, especially if you lose attention, you know, halfway through some of the, some of the big, uh, dialogue heavy, you know, set piece type things, if you like. Okay. Thank you very much, Joel. Um, I saw Alex's hand was up there. So basically anyone, if you've got any additional points you want to make, anything you want to rebut, now is your time. Alex? Just, just two very quick things. One thing, I think if you watch films of that time, of the 30s and 40s, films didn't let you, films were that more dialogue heavy then. And they didn't really let audiences up. You did have to keep up with, you know, if you watch Hitchcock films, you need to keep up with that dialogue, you know, and it is quite snappy. And that is of the time, you know, which is, the, which is what the film's trying to evoke. So I, I don't really think, I, I think if it hadn't done that and if it did the more 
hand-holding approach, it wouldn't have got through as much content. And the content in this film was really interesting. So I'm glad they presupposed a little bit that you would be on board and let's go, you know? Uh, the, the, the one thing I really want to say is just that I think this is one of the more sensitive, and I'll say it, biopics. I, I, one of the more sensitive biopics that I've seen. No one's a monster in this You've film. <laughs> <laughs> I've grown. That, <laughs> that no one's a monster in this film. Even William Randolph Hearst, who obviously throughout is seen, you know, he's not a good character, but they don't do another jo- attack job on him. Do you know what I mean? They let Citizen Kane be that. You know, they don't do it all over again. And it has as much against, well, not as much against him, but it tries to explain that Mank himself isn't exactly a sympathetic character. He's been sniffing the throne. He's been all, all the way through it. So it doesn't attack. You don't have this moment where Charles Dance goes, oh, I'm the terrible, or like where he comes out after watching Citizen Kane and goes, oh, that was a really bad film and I'm really sad. And, and, it, and it's good because, you know, Hearst was a real person and all of these people were real people. So even though it, the film does obviously take sides in you know the fact that it basically says yeah he definitely deserved a screen credit and Orson Welles tried to stop him from getting what he deserved you know it doesn't treat Orson Welles like an idiot either you know and it doesn't treat Mank like a hero it's quite even-handed even though obviously as a as a fictional adaptation you know I'm not a bio biopic but it's not a documentary it's still to a certain extent fiction it's very even-handed and it's better than a lot of films and i think it really respects the fact that these people have families that are living today so it it doesn't attack marion davis it's really nice and it really has a good impression of her and it would have been very easy for amanda seyfried to play her dumb and stupid and for laughs and she didn't and david fincher didn't want her to so i i think this is one of the more sensitive biopics and um and i think it was really grown up and i and i hope i think it's an approach i hope more directors take where they don't take the easy cheap shots and turn these characters into just cartoon monsters and the heroes into cartoon heroes. I, I think that's something that we should celebrate about Mank and, and, uh, and uh, long may it continue. Okay, thank you very much. Anybody else got anything to add? I gather see your hands up. Yeah, no, I will actually agree with what Alex was saying there a little bit and that the characters are very layered and that's interesting because it isn't just very black and white, like Mank is the hero and uh, this guy's the bad guy. It is sort of like, oh yeah, this guy's got very shitty elements, and uh, but he's also quite nice at some points as well. Uh, but it just generally isn't that interesting. Um, you know, I, I, what Alex was saying before about traditionally 30s and 40s films were a bit more dialogue heavy and were more fast paced. I'm thinking of Alfred Hitchcock films like The Lady Vanishes, 39 Steps, Rebecca, you know, the films that were made at that time. I don't know if they were massively dialogue heavy. Maybe they were more fast paced, but one thing that they were was definitely interesting. And this for me just isn't that interesting. It tries to cover a lot of ground in, I mean, it's two hours long, so it should have enough time, but it feels relatively short for the amount of stuff they're trying to cram in there. And it spends more time focusing on the less interesting parts of this man's life than it does the more interesting parts. Isn't it amazing? It's only 15 minutes longer than the Christmas Chronicles. <laughs> and manages to put a little bit more than Christmas Chronicles 2 managed to fit into its an hour and 55 runtime. I, I tell you what, this needed more elves, more CGI elves. <laughs> okay, I'll distinct lack of CGI elves. Yeah. Uh, Austin, I saw your hand up as well. I was telling you, so it's a, it's a really small one, to be honest, if you just do round it back up. Is that, yeah, like I, I, I do agree that with uh, Joel is that this was a film which you have to pay attention to. So for me, to bring it back to the food analogies, is that this felt like I was doing 
like a taste the menu at a fine restaurant rather than <laughs> rather than go you know that's a one that's that's a lot to take in you know let's say seven courses with a wine flight that's a lot to I mean get enough to enjoy for your money <laughs> <laughs> but the experience you take from that you know you pay for the you pay for the experience and and you know the, the time it takes to enjoy all all seven courses of that is what you get if i wanted to just have a nice easy relaxing evening you know i'll go to the toby carvery or, or you know, whatever the equivalent is in, in, in America. Like the thousands of times you the, have, and you never remember of any of them. Whereas yeah, that, you know, I, I can. Don't get me wrong. Those, those, those restaurants, and you know, the Frozen's or an MCU. I love them, but there for a particular time. You know, if you're tired and you want to enjoy that, then that's that's fine. You can get away with that. This is one that I think you do. You do have to pay attention to it, and um, you, if you take them in, those seven courses will reward you finally. Thank you very much, Austin. Gav, I saw your hands up. This better be brief. Yeah, all, all it better I'll be a this, fucking food analogy. <laughs> all, I'm, all I'm saying, man, is that you could order seven items off the McDonald's saver menu and it would be a hell of a lot cheaper and you'd probably be more satisfied by the end of it. Fair point. I'll write it down. We are very different, very different men. <laughs> uh, Joel, finally, anything to add or are you good? Uh, yeah, I'm pretty good. I was struggling to think of any more food analogies, to be honest. <laughs> I won't hold that against you. <laughs> At which point then, I think we're done. I think I've heard everything I need to hear. Um, I mean, I, I would like some time to go through my notes because it's looking a little bit like memento over here right now. I've scribbled <laughs> literally everywhere over these things. Um, but I believe I'm doing the quiz. <laughs> so, Sorry, man. <laughs> poor organization on our behalf. But, so, you, know, you um, can do it. <laughs> if my if my summing up is a little disjointed, I apologize in advance. Okay, so this quiz that I've given you this week, I it was quite difficult to write a quiz about a film I've not seen yet. I didn't really know what to write it on. Uh, I just know that really Randolph Hearst did not care for Citizen Kane and the the alleged illusory hmm. uh, depiction of himself in there. So I've gone on something like that. I've gone for people who took umbrage with depictions of themselves either in biopics or like composite characters that are alluding to them. So, question one. Jamie Foxx played a composite character, Curtis J. Taylor, sorry, Curtis Taylor Jr. in Dreamgirls. Now, this is a composite and it's a fictional character, but unflattering comparisons were drawn to Motown founder Barry Gordy. Which Motown legend uh, was so incensed by this portrayal that he stood up and basically declared war on DreamWorks until they issued an apology to Gordy. Was it A, Stevie Wonder, B, Smokey Robinson, or C, Lionel Richie? Please be Lionel Richie. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I hope he armed himself and like set off. <laughs> I reckon... I'm going to go for B. Yeah, I reckon Smokey. Smokey. Reckon. He, he strikes me as someone who would be more, uh, you know... Militant. Well, yeah, that's how we're going to stay. That's how we're going to stay because he was a fire starter. Ozzy, you going with Smokey as well? Yeah, yeah, please. You are right to go with Smokey, the mild-mannered man of Motown, <laughs> went to town on DreamWorks until they issued an apology. Uh, yeah, Barry Gordy said, "What about your career?" And he said, "I don't give a damn. This is World War Three." Wow. <laughs> Jesus Christ! So, yeah, really took umbrage with that one. Player X played by Michael Sarah in Molly's Game, is another composite character. Oh, oh, essentially, oh. he's a Hollywood screen actor uh, who not only enjoys playing poker, but also ruining the lives of some of his opponents. Who is the principal influence? Ah. Sorry. Even without the options, go on, Alex. Yeah, <laughs> Toby Maguire. Toby Maguire, Alex says, I'll give you the options the rest of you. Is it A, Ben Affleck, B, Leonardo DiCaprio, 
or see Toby Maguire. <laughs> is it Toby Maguire? <laughs> oh, sorry, Dave. I'm, I'm, I'm going to give uh, no, no, no. Like, I'm going to give I'm going to give Alex double the points yeah. for knowing it before the options came up, but the yeah. rest of you do get a point as well. I broke the rules of a quiz and it worked. <laughs> <laughs> Just like Toby Maguire. Did break Toby Maguire on that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you put your hand up and everything. It was a perfectly polite way to to, to ruin the quiz. <laughs> Question number three: Hunter S. Thompson hated the film Where the Buffalo Roam, calling the script bad, dumb, low level, and low rent. But he did praise the performance of himself. Who played him? Oh, oh, is it, oh, 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 is oh. It Double the points for Gav. Is it? Go on. Is it Bill Murray? Gav says Bill Murray, and the rest of you, I'll give you the options. Is it A, Bill Murray? <laughs> is it B, Jeff Bridges, or is it C, John Belushi? John Belushi. Okay, with Gav. Uh, <laughs> Gav seemed very confident. <laughs> and he should be. It is, of course, Bill Murray. Double points for Gav. Let's do it this way. If you, if you know the answer beforehand, <laughs> you just, 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 yeah. keep ourselves entertained here. This, this is getting a bit formulaic. <laughs> Question number four, pop star Peggy Lee was the main source of inspiration for which character? Is it A, Jessica Rabbit, B, Wilma Flintstone, or C, Miss Piggy? Oh. Oh. I'm going to go for A because I feel a bit bad about C. <laughs> Jessica Rabbit. Uh, yeah, I hope that it would be A or B, but I'm going to go C. for Miss Piggy. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll say- I mean... I mean, I really want it to be Wilma, but I think it probably is Jessica Rabbit as well. That is a point for Gav and Joel. It is Miss Piggy. Aww, it was meant as a genuine homage. Uh, the designer of the Muppet was a huge fan of Peggy Lee, one of her favourite singers, and designed the character as kind of a, a strong female what? figure, just like Peggy Lee. And the character's name was originally Miss Piggy Lee. It, uh, it, was, it, was, it was meant as a homage, but was it, it was. taken like a homage? <laughs> not initially. Not initially. Uh, the, the producers I would imagine decided it to wasn't. drop <laughs> the Lee bit. Decided to drop the Lee bit and make it a little less obvious. But uh, Peggy Lee was apparently at first a little offended, but later, according to people close to her, grew to love the character and saw it as the tribute it was meant to be. I just thought it would be Jessica Rabbit because didn't she sing a Peggy Lee song? She might well do, actually. I, I uh, unintentionally put a good red herring in there. <laughs> <laughs> Question number five. Philip Seymour Hoffman played Art Lowe in Moneyball. Aside from hating the depiction of his character in general, what did he particularly object to physically about the casting of Philip Seymour Hoffman? Did Art Lowe say that Hoffman wasn't tall enough? Did he say he was too overweight? Or did he say he wasn't handsome enough? Oh, see. Honestly, see. It's going to be hunk. Yeah. I'm going to say B is petty. <laughs> that's a point to Gav he did object to say Hoffman was too overweight to play wow. he said even at his biggest he was not as big as Hoffman that was the bit that wow. he really took on bridge with wow. yeah what a petty man what an, <laughs> what, what an up and yeah he genuinely hated the film and, and the depiction of him even though some of the uh, the players who played under him have since come out and corroborated some of the things the film says about him so wow. We all learned something today. <laughs> Question number six. Mark Zuckerberg was not happy with the social network, but what was his main sticking point with the story? Is it A, he was depicted as single when he created Facebook? Is it B? I wasn't a single not... nerd. It was... <laughs> I did have a girlfriend, I promise you. I did have a girlfriend. I was alive then. <laughs> Is it I was B? definitely living. <laughs> he objected to the way he's shown cutting the Winklevoss twins out of part of their idea. And or is it C? He didn't like the way the film depicted his dress sense. B. I'm pretty sure I've read that. He didn't. Uh, so Joel saying Winklevoss. Uh, 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 yeah, he's a petty little prick as well. So let's say I'm A. Gonna say Clo- I'm going to say Clarence. I'm going to go B. Winklevoss. Vinkle- 
That's a point that Gav, he did object to the fact he was depicted as single when Facebook was... <laughs> wow. Not for that reason did, that he wanted everyone to know. I did have a girl. I used to go... No, you don't know us. You don't know us. She's not on Facebook anymore. You don't see her. She's from a caravan site. I used to go on holiday. They don't have internet access. This is my Facebook. In his defence, they didn't have Facebook back then. That's true. You can prove it. That's my space though, was it? <laughs> his problem with it was um, that the film basically it, it got, he's galvanized after he's broken up with and he pursues it out of a broken heart and that's how he betters himself to, to create Facebook and he said the whole premise is off because I didn't get broken up with before I created Facebook I'm married I broke up with person. her yeah. I broke up with her <laughs> he's yeah, in fact yeah. married to the same yeah, yeah. person he was with at the time then well, I mean if you watch Jesse Eyes I mean if that's your only beef with that <laughs> depiction <laughs> that's what I thought Odd. that's what I thought his, his I dress sense was Bob Ooh. on by the way grey t-shirt and jeans that is <laughs> I wonder if the reason he wanted to make sure that it wasn't depicted as a broken heart uh, that was definitely not truth is whether she could come back and say, well, you know, I essentially spared him on to create this behemoth that is Facebook and now I want some of the money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and he was worried about it. As I say, he is married to her now, so they've got bigger problems to worry about if she's going to take him for money now. <laughs> Question number seven. What is real-life con man Frank Abagnale's problem with Catch Me If You Can, the biopic of his life, seeing as he enjoyed it when it was first released? Is it A, he turns out he didn't make enough money from the film? Is it B, he's sorry? Or is it C, it ruined his career as a security consultant? I think it's A, isn't it? That he didn't get paid enough. Or is that the other guy, the one from um, Wolf of Wall Street? Yeah, that's his problem, Belfort. isn't it? Oh, is it? I think maybe I'm B. Go for C. Yeah, I'm going to go for C. He's mm. quite a nice guy, so I th- I'm hoping his career as a security consultant. I'm going to give the point to Alex. It is that he's sorry. Oh, yeah. he's he really nice guy. This time around, um, he said, "Yeah, look, it was a good film. It was entertaining. It was quite accurate." He said, "In hindsight, it was a bit glamorous," uh, and he's he genuinely feels guilty for stealing money from people. So he's actually like he didn't want it to be mm. remembered for that. Um, so yeah, he is because he's sorry. I, did, I kind of disagree with him on that. I think it's a good portrayal. I don't think you're like, oh, I'm going to start doing that. It I mean, it make... all goes to shit at the end, doesn't exactly. it? Exactly. doesn't end well. Yeah. Yeah, not like... Spoiler alert. <laughs> well, it kind of does end well in that he doesn't go to prison and he gets a mm, fucking job yeah, for the true. FBI. So. <laughs> I mean, that's true. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, not like, like Blow, which I think does glamorize drugs, for example, in spite of the bad ending. Yeah. I still remember watching that and thinking I'm definitely going to... I'm yeah, doing playing and start selling cocaine. I cannot wait to do some cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> and we never look back since. Question number eight. Winnie Mandela objected to the 2011 biopic, which bears her name, for what reason? Was it A, she was consulted on the script and objected to it, but they went ahead anyway? Is it B, she was consulted on the casting, objected to it, but it went ahead anyway? Is it C, she wasn't consulted by anyone at any time? I'm going to say casting. I feel like there's a theme going here. There's a theme of people being petty. I'm going to say that she didn't like who was going to play her. Okay. Yeah. Go on. Yeah, I'll go with Ozzy as well. C, not consulted at all. And Joel? Go for C as well, please. That's the point that Alex and Joel, she was not consulted at any point. She actually did approve of Jennifer Hudson, who played her in the film. But uh, despite the fact the film was filmed uh, just one town over in South Africa, at no point did producers, screenwriters, or uh, contact her to ask her opinion on it. Wow. And Jennifer Hudson was actually told by the producers not to contact her. They said they wanted her to play their version of Winnie Mandela. Ooh. And not Winnie Mandela herself. Ooh. 
Yeah, Ooh, that's, that's a complicated way of doing a role. We want you Isn't to be it? Winnie Mandela, but not actually Winnie Mandela. Yeah, we want you to be uh, the way <laughs> we've depicted Winnie Mandela. Yeah, we've we've rewrote this story the way we want it to be remembered. <laughs> yeah. well, it's like the Social Network, isn't it? That's that's his version of uh, Mark Zuckerberg, and not actually Mark Zuckerberg, isn't it? Allegedly, yeah. although they got the dress code right here. <laughs> <laughs> Question number nine. The real Patch Adams famously hated the Robin Williams film about his life I mean, as, he well as, as well as Robin Williams' performance. Uh, but which work of Robin Williams has also um, had a lot of objections raised over a real-life portrayal? The real Mork is livid. We didn't come down in a fucking gag. His name was Mark, for one thing. Is it A, the family of Dwight D. Eisenhower um, did uh, object to his depiction of him in The Butler? Is it the family of Teddy Roosevelt objected to his depiction of him not in the museum? (laughs) Or is it Adrian Cronauer from Good Morning Vietnam? C, we see. Good Morning Vietnam. I mean, I want it to be Teddy Roosevelt. <laughs> yeah, can you like, so Petty is like, no, I know it's a kid's film, but that is ridiculous. <laughs> His moustache wasn't big enough. <laughs> and Aussie? I, I'm going to go with C as well. That's a point for all of you. It is, of oh. course, Adrian Cronar. And final question, which member of NWA objected to Straight Outta Compton uh, for saying he played a much more important part in the band and in the writing of their hits? Is it A, Dr. Dre, B, DJ Yeller, or C, MC Ren? B probably not Dr. Dre because he's quite yeah. integral to that I'm going to go um, for B going to go for C B that is a point that Alex it was MC Ren didn't even oh, know wow. who he was in the film <laughs> <laughs> that's his point that's, that's part of the problem <laughs> yeah, you don't know exactly. who he is in the film uh, and I have actually been keeping score for once Gav wins well done Gav well done, well done. Well done everybody that's a good that's a good, good score well. tally you all got going that was, a good, that was a good quiz Dave well done, yeah, well done. That, play, that felt like well a play. very engaging quiz well done it was It was. I mean there's a lot of petty people out there it's quite fun to take the mick out of some of them <laughs> yeah <isn't it? laughs> Okay. Tell um, the lawsuits come in. Out of curiosity, out of curiosity, who would you want to play you in a in a biopic? Um, oh, that's, oh, you're asking too many questions now. I mean, is Danny Trejo available? <laughs> <laughs> I would love to see his version of it. He would encapsulate your spirit more than anything, wouldn't he? Dave? Well, yeah, I'd like to think I don't, I don't bear any resemblance, seeing as he is like seventy odd at this point. But still, you know, it's the, it's the spirit of the film. Uh, speaking of which, let's get back on to Mank. I have had no time to consider my notes, so I'm just going to go through this kind of disjointedly uh, and absurdly. <laughs> Lasagna looks unappealing. <laughs> no CGI elves. Uh, <laughs> no, I was I was able to piece uh, some semblance together, and I know where I'm going with this one now. So, Gav was saying about snippets of a historical time. Um, you know, it's a very broad scope that we're presented with here. We see the rise of Hitler. We see uh, 1930s Hollywood. We see political elections. It is broad, a very broad scope, and none of us could really be expected to know much about that. Well, know enough about that period of time. Um, we would have to do some research about it afterwards. But I like the fact that a film puts itself forward and encourages you to research more. But this is a fascinating point in American history. And it is uh, quite rewarding to research some of these things. If the film engages you enough, it is good to look into these things and find out more on your own. That you know, There's not enough time in the world for a film to concisely give you these points. And also there's not enough time for the film to really show you all the characters that they may want to. Sometimes you've got to settle for a cameo of these like larger-than-life figures that made 1930s Hollywood what it is. Um, so with concise um, pictures of the characters, I do see why they decided to do it that way. You know, you're never going to get that full picture. 
Um, Gav mentioned the characters talk rapidly without listening. I appreciate Ozzy's point of that. That does hark back to that old style of film noir. Sort of, it doesn't feel like anyone is listening to one another. You know, they aren't basically talking over each other, rapid fire. You know, I'm sure Family Guy and The Simpsons have made fun of it at some point. And I do believe that is an attempt to immerse you. It may be an attempt that backfired if you find it jarring. We're not used to that kind of dialogue delivery these days. Um, but I do feel that's what it is. It is an attempt to immerse you in the 1930s. We talked about solid performances. Gary Oldman, I expect no less, to be honest with you. He is a fantastic actor. I wasn't really surprised by that one. I was pleasantly surprised to hear about Amanda Seyfried. I've never disliked her as an actress, but she's never blown me away as such. It's great to hear that she is uh, on top of a game on this one, that this could be a great performance for her. This could be a really memorable performance for her. Generally, that sounds like there's not much else going on in the cast, and it does seem like quite a big cast. But then again, with the time frame we're looking at, I kind of get why maybe some people are pushed in the background. Uh, Gav objected to the age of Gary Oldman, you know, being too old for, uh, for playing Mankovitz. Mankovitz was an alcoholic, though, so I could believe that he may have looked 60-odd when he was in his 40s. I do believe that could work. You know, Mankovitz was not a well man. And although there's a lot of time flips back and forth, he did write the majority of Citizen Kane from his hospital bed. It would be a bit dull if we just saw that in one chunk. I think if we're going to get the writing of Citizen Kane nailed, we've got to go back and forth and jump from back and forth in time to see why he's writing the scenes he's writing, why he took so much rehearsed dialogue um, from genuine speeches and put it in his script. I think that's the only way you're going to do this and make it compelling. Um, and yeah, with all that in mind, the relevance to today, I mean, I am getting... Like, Images of Breitbart, to be honest with you, hmm. the William Randolph Hearst comparisons. It does feel like it's a relevant film. It may have been a passion project. In fact, I believe it was, but that doesn't necessarily make it a bad film. All in all, I cannot find enough reasons to put it on the shit list. This sounds like it could be a delight if you're in the right mood for it. Thank you very much, Dave. Uh, You're, very better good awesome well, Dave. You're better than Orson Welles, Dave. You're better than Orson Welles. Okay, so genuine opinions. Start off with Alex. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I, I, I think it's on the right list. I think it should be on the hit list. I did agree with, um, you know, when they're talking about the heavy dialogue, there were times, I think that speech when he's going around the table and he's talking about Don Quixote and Pancho and stuff like that. It was a bit, you were a bit like, oh, I can add that. You know, I'm, I'm getting a little bit lost in places here. So dialogue heavy, but, you know, I think you had a good point there, Dave. It was like, well, it just make you want to sort of like be smarter a little bit, you know what I mean? And get the references a little bit. Um, maybe the one thing I thought was maybe it was lacking a little bit of emotional heart, I think, at places. Um, I didn't always sort of get behind Mank when I sort of felt like I should a bit. So all in all, I definitely I agree with lots of what I said. I think it should be on the hit list. But the film I kept thinking about quite a lot was Trumbo. I don't know if you've seen Trumbo, but oh, yeah. that's Ryan about, Johnson. you know, Hollywood writers. It's a little, you know, about 10, 10, 15 years later during the blacklisting. And I did compare it in my head quite a lot to Trumbo to its disadvantage. Just as a political, from the political point of view, I think Trumbo achieved a lot more. Maybe from a directing, evoking a golden age that manks the film you want to watch. So, no, I, yeah, I'm, I'm glad it's on the hit list. Yeah. Think about if David Fincher would have directed Trumbo. We would have had the perfect film then. That's true. Uh, <laughs> uh, Ozzy, what's your um, opinion? I, I didn't lie throughout what I said. I think it was very pretty. I think it was good. I think the my later line where Joel really summed up, and I think it was the... Sometimes you're just not in the mood for a seven-course meal, you know? The, <laughs> the dialogue-heavy bit did... 
I think, you know, if we're stuck in indoors all the time and what you really need is some light relief. This was not light relief for me, um, but it, I am glad I watched it. Like, and I think it's on the right list. Um, I would go back, you know, it was just like Alex just said, you know, there was just periods where you think, I don't think I'm clever enough to, you know, in, in this scene, I just don't know enough about what's mm-hmm. being referred to, to, to get, and, and you know, you, you summed it up quite nicely is that you do have to, you know, it, it spurs you on to maybe go and research some bits about why was that relevant? What was that line invoking, you know, and you, you have a little read up, you know, afterwards and you think, shit, that's, that's really, it is really interesting in that sense. And it is very clever. Um, and it's, but it's beautifully shot, you know, not one bit of what I said was a lie. Um, just it, it's, um, it's that last bit, you know, sometimes you're in a mood for, you said it, you summed it up that if you're in the right mood for this, you will love it. Um, I think it's a really good film from that point of view, but just give yourself a bit of an easy day before going to watch yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, so my opinion is a little bit the same, to be honest. I thought it was a very hard watch. I, I, my wife and I had an incredibly hard weekend this weekend. It's just a lot, lot of jobs. And then we sat down to kind of enjoy uh, a film at the very end of it, you know, after, after working ridiculous hours. And that was just not the film. <laughs> you know, yeah. Similar to what Joel said about his wife. You know, uh, we got about an hour in and I paused it. And she was like, Jesus Christ, there's still over an hour left. You know, so we had to abandon it and I had to watch Ro- it again. Row Ro left with, I literally row left within seven minutes. <laughs> yeah. it, it is hard going. I, I, I do think that it is on the right list. I didn't particularly like it though. I did think it was quite boring in parts. I think it was beautifully made. I think it's got a lot of positives, but overall, the full package, I didn't really like him. Sorry. Joel? Yeah, it's not often I fully agree with that, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, uh, it is It is very well made, and I can appreciate, you know, the effort that's gone into it into it and stuff, but I just think it's too niche. Like, this, this is going to appeal to, like, a very small, you know, kind of type of film lover, and I do think it's just for those people um i zoned out very very quickly i don't think it's interesting like to me at all and you know i, I love film and I'm, i watch everything i can and you know it, it just wasn't for me maybe it's like a seven course taster meal <laughs> every but it you know it's all based around bugs or something like that you know <laughs> a very like, very niche taste like you can appreciate the effort that's made in and it looks beautiful <laughs> But actually, it's a, really it's a seven it. course taster, but it's like that restaurant where the chef comes and explains each dish to you. <laughs> in minutes well, well, you're just about well, to it eat goes it. cold yeah. before you're just like, can I just fucking eat my food? That's what it's like. A seven course taster menu based around Celeriac. <laughs> you're going to love it. I would genuinely say we managed at the end of all of those food analogies to arrive at the most apt food analogies in Manchester. <laughs> <laughs> like, well done, everyone. Like, we, did, uh, we got there. I mean, it does sound niche out of four film lovers that have seen it on this podcast one in four liked it <laughs> but everyone agrees that it is it is hitless material at least yeah. to be fair that's probably better than the going rate for shampoo commercials where they say like 80 <laughs> percent right, of yeah. 102 women or whatever like this product um anyway i'm getting off topic higher or lower than our <laughs> than our previous film on trial which was christmas chronicles 2 <laughs> i'm gonna pop it a little well any a film with Bellish nickel in is gonna be <laughs> yeah. gonna beat this film to the ground Man, that kid was so bad 
Right. Yeah. A little <laughs> bit, get off topic. We get off topic. Okay. Uh, right, I'll, I'll just eliminate all all doubt here. Uh, it's higher, obviously. Uh, Christmas Chronicles got sixty nine. Mike's got eighty eight uh, out of one hundred and seventy two audience. So the audience is much lower, but. Um, yeah, as I said, early days. So we'll see if that maintains its sort of um, certified fresh score as the months go on. It is hotly tipped to be an Oscar contender. So. Oh yeah, it's massive Oscar bait. Like yes. they've definitely yeah. planted the it Oscar. Sounds like seeds. Oscar bait. Yeah, yeah. Amanda well, Seyfried should very much at least get. Oh yeah, she, yeah she's brilliant. Like, she was brilliant in it. Um, okay, right. So in two weeks' time, on Monday the twenty first of December, seven p- uh, no, it's not seven pm, seven thirty pm. UK time, we're going to be hosting a live trial on Facebook. It'll be a good laugh. There's going to be an interactive quiz. There's going to be some giveaways and probably a very heated debate as we put the Christmas classic Elf on trial. So please do tune in. It'll be a good time. And uh, yeah, uh, I mean, what else are you going to be doing? <laughs> so in the meantime, the next film on trial has been pulled out of the hat at random and it is Noel the new Disney Christmas film starring Bill Hader and Anna Kendrick. So the roles have also been picked out of the hat of random. And in defense, it's going to be Dave and Ozzy. In prosecution, it's going to be myself and Alex. That means the judge is going to be Joel. So, yeah, thank you to everybody who's listened to this episode. Really do appreciate it, honestly. And if you have liked the episodes, please remember, like, share, subscribe, and why not leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Just spread the warm love. There's films on trial in as many as possible. Check out our Twitter page, at Film Trials, and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, Films on Trial. So that is it. Mank is a hit, and we're going to be in your ears next week with Noel. Goodbye, everyone. No, sorry. I wasn't. I wasn't insulting your accent. I was insulting you as a teacher. <laughs> <laughs>